Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, so good to see so many of you out tonight. I want to thank Gary for his very kind invitation to come and to be with you tonight. I am the Ireland team leader for Crosslinks. Some of you know about Crosslinks because you've been supporting Crosslinks for many years. You've been giving financially, you've been praying for our mission partners. But there are some visitors here tonight who don't know anything about Crosslinks. So I'm going to divulge you for a moment, if I may, just to tell you a little bit about Crosslinks. Because we are an international mission society. We have our roots in the Bible. We work largely within the Anglican Church all over the world. So Church of Ireland, Church of England, the Episcopal Church in Scotland, and so on and so forth. Anything Anglican, we're there, but not exclusively. And simply, our business is to make Jesus Christ known through the teaching of God's Word and the power of His Holy Spirit. And we do this by organising gospel partnerships right across cultural boundaries. And in all of the things that we do as we're organising these partnerships, we have two key aims. The first aim is to undertake and to enable frontline evangelism, where there isn't a local church like a local church here that can do that sort of thing. So we partner with people who can go to various parts of the world and to be engaged in frontline evangelism. That is telling other people about Jesus and the gospel. The second thing is that we train trainers. That is, we train people who will then teach and train others. So, for example, this year I went to Serbia to train church leaders, who then in turn will be able to train their local church leaders that they would have confidence in the Word of God, be able to teach it effectively and helpfully. We have mission partners all over the world. We've been uh, around since 1922. We've sent out over 820 mission partners in those years. And here's one that's just hot off the press. And it's a couple uh, with their children, uh, three beautiful girls, called Trevor and Andrea Watson. And I've left some literature for you in a box at the back. And Trevor and Andrea Watson are from Northern Ireland. They're ministering up on the north coast at the minute, up in cool rain. But they're going to serve the Lord out in Sweden, where it's very difficult to be a Bible-believing Christian. I don't know whether you knew that or not. But they're going to serve next year and go to Gothenburg, where he will be involved in pastoring a church, and uh, the family are out there to support that ministry, and we thank God for them. Please, if you want to pray for Trevor and Andrea, please take some of the literature at the back. There's all sorts of things that I've brought uh, with me tonight, and I do want you so much to take it with you, if you haven't got it. Our yearbook, with all the stuff that we do, the mission partners and the projects and the people we support for theological education, it's all in there, and... Sometimes people like little boxes. It's always good to have a little box by your phone. You've got a spare penny or two. That's for you there as well. Please take it. It's free. And I would love you to keep praying for us. I'm so grateful that you have a prayer meeting once a quarter here for Crosslinks and, and God's mission for Crosslinks. I want to say thank you so much for being involved with that. Thank you so much for praying for God's mission around the world. But this is a harvest service. <laughs> And I love harvest services. It's a good thing to come together to give thanks to God for all the wonderful things that he gives us from the land. And you can see, if you look around the building, that there have been people who have taken an awful lot of time to decorate your building so beautifully with the things that the Lord has provided. And we say thank you, Lord, for that. And thank you for taking the time to do that. It is wonderful. I would like us now, if you would mind please, to turn to Acts chapter 17. 
And um, it's always good to have the Bible opened up in front of you uh, for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that you can check whether the preacher is telling you the truth, that what they're teaching you is from the Bible, and it's not just something that we're on our soapbox about. That's always a very good thing. It doesn't matter who gets into the pulpit to do that. The second reason why it's good to have the Bible open up in front of you when the preacher's preaching is so it might keep you awake as you focus on what he's saying. Two very, very good reasons to have your Bible open. So let's pray and we'll ask the Lord for his help as we, um, as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, you do write the saving message of your Son Jesus unto the hearts of simple men and women like us. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit now that we may believe the truth about Jesus and speak it plainly to our world. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So please do have that open as I preach. You know, preachers, we always like to know how people respond to our preaching. There's a wonderful story, I don't know whether you've ever heard this before, of an 18th century clergyman. He was a chaplain at a Cambridge college. He was known for preaching very long sermons, which seemed to go off the point after a while. There were always unconnected points. And one day he preached his masterpiece. It was a three-hour marathon sermon, and there were all sorts of unconnected points that he was talking about. The pulpit in his chapel was very high. His building was very dimly lit, not like this building here. And when he climbed down the steps from the pulpit, he had noticed that all but one of his congregation had slipped out during the sermon. And the one soul that remained had died. Now, that might be some people's uh, uh, response and perceptions about the effect of preaching. Um, I want to tell you it was a world away from what happened to the Apostle Paul whenever he was in, in, in Athens. Uh, you know the Bible describes uh, the world um, as a harvest field. You're aware of that, aren't you? From Ma- Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. It's a very shocking image, actually, this idea of harvest, particularly in the Gospels. It's always linked with the judgment. You know, at the close of the age, whenever Jesus comes again with his angels, it's like a great harvest, Jesus says, and his angels will reap the harvest and will bring in and will judge the living and the dead. And Jesus looks at the world and he says it is ripe for harvest. We have the Apostle Paul here. He is a harvest worker. He has been raised up by the Lord to go out into the harvest field. And here in in Acts chapter 17, the harvest field is Europe. It is Greece. We're focusing right down into Athens. And he's talking to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is not a building. It's a council of people. And so what we have here is a harvest message. Proclaimed by a harvest worker who is out in God's harvest field. Paul is involved in his second missionary journey. His companions, Silas and Timothy, they've remained behind in Berea, and Paul has come to Athens. And in the ancient world, uh, there was never any doubt about where the best universities were. They were always in Athens. It was the centre of academic excellence. Paul comes to the city of Athens, and what do we read in verse 16 in the opening of our reading? He sees the city so full of idols, he's greatly distressed. So as he walked around, he saw the externals of the city. Idolatry was everywhere, and I want to say to you that idolatry everywhere is very hard to stomach. Idolatry is very terrible because it reverses this fundamental fact of the universe, that we who are made in God's image 
imagine that we can make God in our image. You worship whatever is at the heart of your life. And as sinners, we instinctively put ourselves there, don't we? Things that we make, we put those things there too. The honour belongs to God. It is his by right. And the Bible says he's very jealous. He's got the right to our first loyalty and our first love. And he's very jealous whenever we transfer that to another. Athens is a very distressing place. Paul looked around at the buildings. He looked around uh, at the people. And he sees that they are idolatrous to the core. And he is greatly distressed. But if you look at verse 17, what is his concern? His concern is to reason with them, isn't it? It's to persuade them. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace. He speaks with anybody who will listen to him. And what does he talk about? Well, verse 18 tells us. Some of them ask, what's this babbler trying to say? He's advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They loved to do that in Athens. They were fascinated with strange ideas. Look at verse 21. All the Athenians, the foreigners who lived there, they spent their time, they did nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is the place that you would want to go if you wanted to throw an idea about it. A little bit like going to the coffee shop, isn't it, with your friends? And even though Paul is in distress, we see verse 22, the degree of tact and diplomacy in what he said. He could have said, Men of Athens, I see that despite your claims to the contrary, you really are a bunch of empty-headed, superstitious idiots. But he he doesn't say that, does he? It is a very foolish advocate who alienates the very panel that decides his case. So what does he say? He says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It's a very tactful opening. It's a very diplomatic opening to what he has to say. And the point of engagement that he sees in their culture is there in verse 23. They have an altar to an unknown God. The Athenians were polytheists. That is, that they worship many, many gods. And the problem with being a polytheist is that you never know whether you're going to get them all. (laughs) So just to be sure, just to cover your bases, they put up this generic altar to an unknown God. And Paul says in verse 24, the God. And what he does is, he engages the mind as he attacks their theology. And he engages the mind because transformation comes through the renewal of the mind. I have emotion and I have will, but you are going to come at me through my mind. And what does he do? Well, let's have a look. He corrects their thinking in four ways. The first thing he says to them is there in verse 24. He says, you build a temple as if God needs a house to keep the weather out. You make a place for him, but the reality is that he has made a place for you. See what he says in verse 24? He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. He's made the world, he's made everything in the world. And you are going to make a place for him, really? Second thing he says is there in verse 25. You think that God will go hungry if you do not have the food offerings up to him. You know, a little bit like your pet dog that's dependent on you. Well, I better go out and feed God. The opposite is true. Verse 25, that he gives life to everyone. The next breath that you are about to breathe depends on God giving you the ability to breathe. The third thing he says is there in verses 26 through to 28. 
You think that God is lost. Somehow you have to go out and find him. That he's gone wandering about and he doesn't know where he is. But in reality you are lost. And he has taken the first step towards you. What has he done? He has created order. He has created place. He has created seasons. And God did this, verse 27, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he is not far from each one of us. He is the universal Lord. He's not a local little G God. He's not owned by any one nation. The fourth line of attack is there in verse 29. That God is not our offspring. That he's not the product of our imagination. That he's not made in our image just to be like us. That we have been made by him. And that we are his offspring and that we bear his image. It doesn't matter who we are. European or Asian or African or American or Canadian or any. Every other person on the face of this planet. We live and we move. And we have our being because of him. That he is greater than us. That he is certainly not less than us. You know that every idol that you can imagine is less than us, don't you? It is inanimate. It is lifeless. But God is greater than us. So now, as you're working your way through this passage, you begin to see that Paul really is truly working the mind, isn't he? This unknown God, what is he like? He is not dependent He does not need a shelter built by human hands. He does not need feeding. He is not lost. And he is not made in our image. In fact, the very opposite of all those things is true. That we are dependent. He has made a place for us. That we need him to give us life. That we are lost. And we are made in his image. This is what the true God is like. So the question then is, what are we going to do in the light of this true and only God? Well, in the past, there's been some uncertainty to God's response to idolatry. There's been a lot of distorted thinking about God, but now it is very clear, verse 30, God calls all people everywhere. And please notice it's not some people somewhere, particularly those awful and smelly people. But God wants all good people and all bad people, people of every color, all people everywhere to repent. That's the one command he gives. Repent. Turn away from All this idolatry. Turn away from all those false notions that you have about God. The idea that God depends on you to feed him. That you have to provide a shelter for him. That you have to clothe him. That he's made in your image. He's a reflection of you. That he's one among many gods. Turn your back on all of that. And turn to the true and living God. So here we have the Apostle Paul in Athens. Where there's meant to be all this wisdom. And... Right at the very heart of Athens, all he finds is foolishness. What is this wisdom that Paul is preaching? Well, you know the best biblical definition of wisdom is to live in harmony with reality. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And it's foolishness because at the heart of reality is God. And therefore it's foolishness to say that there is no God. It just goes against reality. But the wise person says that the Lord is there... And fears the Lord. That's what it's meant to live in harmony with reality. Now when I was um, younger. I went to Oak Hill College in London. It's a, it's a Church of England training college. And when I was there I joined a band. And uh, we were very good. I thought. You know good enough to make it all the way to the top. That's how, that's how, that's how delusional I was. 
But anyway, uh, we wanted to get some photographs for our publicity uh, for this band. We went down to a country park in Dorset, found some very beautiful places, but this particular place had a stream running along, and somebody thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we all ran at the stream, jumped the stream, and we'll get a photograph of everybody in mid-flight across the street. Wouldn't that be brilliant publicity? So that's what we were going to do, except one of the band members, he wasn't really enamoured with that idea. He wasn't confident that he'd make it onto the other side. He was a little bit older than some of us. He thought he would just do himself a bit of a damage, maybe end up in the middle of the stream. He came to the conclusion it's far too dangerous, and therefore he would pretend to jump. So we would all run... We jumped and he just went. And, and that's what the photograph came out like. One foot on the ground as if he was about to, to jump over this. Do you know, it was a good photo, if I'm, if I'm honest. And we all thought he was a wimp. But there was wisdom to him being a wimp. I'll tell you why. He saw the reality of the situation for him. He was older. He couldn't jump the length of himself. He knew he'd end up in the middle of it all and do himself a damage saw the danger of it, and he reacted accordingly. Now, you're thinking, why is he telling us this? Look at verse 31. Verse 31 tells us the reality of the situation. For he, that's God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, that's the reality. That God has fixed the day in which there will be the judgment of the world. And if you were to stand up in the middle of a storm and assembly, if they ever got together to meet again. And if you were to say, the end is near, repent. Don't be surprised if some of the security men come in and carry you off and you're taken away to an asylum. Because our culture says that that is the essence of insanity, doesn't it? And yet here the Apostle Paul is saying that that is the essence of reality. That God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world with justice. That he has appointed the man through whom he will judge and he's given proof of this by raising that man from the dead. He hasn't said he's appointed Jesus. You notice that? Imagine if he did, the Areopagus would have said, well, what has a foreign Jew got to do with us? Paul doesn't even say, God's appointed his own divine son, the second person of the Trinity, which is all true. He says that God has appointed the man the reality is that God has set the judgment day. He's appointed the judge. He will judge with justice. He's given proof that the judgment day is coming by raising the judge from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof. If you were to do um, a scientific experiment to prove that gravity existed, somebody might say to you, prove that gravity existed. You might take your pen. And you might say, well, I'm going to drop my pen and the force that takes the pen to the ground is called gravity. So you drop your pen and you say that, that's gravity. A very simple scientific experiment to prove that gravity exists. And then they say to you, prove that again. You take your pen and you hold it over the edge again and you say, just watch the pen fall to the ground. That's called gravity. That's the force that's taken it down. And there you have gravity. People say, show, show me the proof. Don't they? Show me the proof. We draw a distinction between scientific proof, for example, gravity exists, and legal proof. 
The judge does not say, let's see this criminal act again. What is the judge saying? You're a witness, tell me what you saw. You are a witness, tell me what you saw. Paul uses the word proof in verse 31 in the legal way, not the scientific way. Paul says, God has given proof to all men. In fact, he says, we are witnesses of this. I saw him on the Damascus road. All of the apostles are telling you what they have seen. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof of the judgment day. And they are witnesses of it. But how does it prove judgment day? Well, death was not the end for him. Death will not be the end for you. But there is a beyond death. And you will face the judgment of Jesus who will judge with justice. That would blow the mind of any of those people in, in Athens. All their philosophical schools that are mentioned in verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they had no hope of anything beyond the grave. All they said was, look, there's nothing beyond the grave. Don't worry about the gods. They're not interested in you. They're not worried about you. Therefore, this idea of resurrection is just foolishness. But Paul stands up to the Areopagus and he says, the resurrection is the essence of all reality. And I'll tell you that if it is not true, then it's not important. If it is true, then it is infinitely important. What it cannot be is moderately important. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? You see, that's the question, isn't it? And if you do, repent. Stop all the foolishness and repent of your idolatry. Serve the true and living God who appointed the man. Don't keep living for yourself in idolatry. Don't keep serving all these other gods. And please believe me whenever I say idolatry is a problem for all of us. Every time you begin a sentence, I like to think of God as... You are committing a mental idolatry by constructing a God in your own imagination. Every time you say, I know the Bible says that God is our maker and our holy judge, but I prefer to think of him as father. You're committing idolatry. This DIY spirituality, this DIY religion, it's just idolatry. But it is far more than just anything that is specifically religious. When you buy a lottery ticket with greed as your motivation, you are saying that you are putting your trust in Camelot to provide for you rather than the Lord who provides for his people. Every time you decide that you're far too busy making money, getting on in your career, looking after your children, too busy with all of those sort of things rather than making time for God and for Christian fellowship, you have idolatry. So please be concerned that there is a day coming and all of us must repent of our idolatry, that we trust God and we bow before him with the obedience of faith. Don't live as if this day isn't coming. Because this is the reality. God has fixed the judgment day. Therefore, all of us must flee to Jesus. Flee to Jesus and he will save you. At this at the beginning, you know, the preachers like to know how people respond to what they preach. You look at the response to Paul's message. And you can see it there at the end of the passage. Verse 32, there were those who sneered. There were others who said, well, we do want to hear more of this. And there were some 
Dionysius and Damaris who are named, for whom that day would just never be forgotten that they became followers and they believed. So why repent? Because reality is different to what you think. The day of judgment will be bleak for those who are deliberately ignorant of God. So we make every effort to ensure that we are not one of those people. But the gospel says that in Jesus Christ alone, we can have forgiveness for ignoring God. Forgiveness for rebelling against his right to be God in our lives. And all we need to do is repent. That we turn to him, that we receive his forgiveness. Because the humble person can find God and can know him and can enjoy this peace forever. So repent. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, for his death on the cross, in our place and for our sins. We thank you for his resurrection as the proof that the judgment day is coming. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to repent of all our idolatry and to turn to Jesus, to bow before him, to know him as Saviour and Lord, that we might live for you in this life and with you in the life to come. Amen.